Alrighty, everyone, welcome back for another episode of the Ultimate Podcast Series. With me, as always, my trusted co-host, Mitch Kurtz. Welcome back, Hello. Mitch. Hello. Good to see you, you on for the same time that you're on every podcast episode. <laughs> um, and also joining us today, uh, much more excited about, um, is Matt Golden, the CEO of LifeSpot Health. Welcome, Matt. Hey, guys. Great to be here. Great to have you. It is great to have you. And uh, I know you've been keeping busy and we're going to take, oh, I've got a series of questions that I've got ready to, to quiz you about, but I want to maybe start with your background and, and how you found yourself as uh, sort of getting to a, the position of CEO of a, a big cannabis company. Yeah. So, well, my, my background is actually in, in pharmaceuticals. So I started um, more years than I care to admit ago uh, in Melbourne as a, uh, as a rep, which um, was a fantastic experience dealing with um, GPs and educating doctors on, on pharmacokinetics and, and the, um, the advantages of some drugs over others. Um, and then uh, worked there as a rep for three years for, um, that was with Pfizer. And then um, ended up moving up to Sydney to be part of their marketing team. Um, in the head office there, and I was there for it was a good six years, um, managing certain certain drugs like um, mostly antihypertensives and cardiovascular drugs, um, and then was able to launch a really unique drug called Cadua, which was the first cardiovascular drug to actually incorporate two drugs that treated two different distinct cardiovascular risk factors. Um, so launched that in Australia and we actually had uh, the best launch globally for Caduit, um, which, was, which was really pleasing. We got the best market share, the fastest market share um, by every parameter. Um, some of the team who were on the global and regional teams for Pfizer for that, um, they then later moved on to other launch products in New York and uh, one of those products was a, a little drug called Eloquus, um, which is a replacement for warfarin effectively. It's a factor 10A inhibitor. And um, yeah, I was, uh, they, were, they were looking for a regional director to um, be part of that. And um, they knew me and uh, suggested that I should apply for the role. So I did and I ended up Pulling myself over and the family over to New York. Um, lived there for four years, w working on 42nd Street. So wow. it's pretty exciting. Um, just great, on yeah. Grand Central Station. I used to catch the train into Grand Central Station, just walk a few blocks past the Chrysler building. Oh, yeah. I see. Um, I think the best claim to fame there was that uh, if you watch one of the original Christopher Reeve Superman movies, he actually flew up 42nd Street on one of the, one of the scenes. And uh, straight past my office window. Were you waving? Or were you in that scene just giving it a casual one? Or uh... If I had been waving, I think when that happened, I would have been probably in diapers or a primary school uniform or something. But uh, yeah, but, um, I, I, it used to be quite funny. You see that movie on TV and say, oh, that's, that's my office. Um, so I was there for four years um, launching Eloquist, which is now the, I believe, the second largest selling pharmaceutical in the world. Yeah. And um, then moved to Belgium, uh, looking after Eastern Europe, and uh, from was there for a little while. And then from Belgium, we went down and ended up as uh, the head of marketing for Pfizer in Indonesia, based out of uh, Jakarta. So Fantastic. yeah, it was quite interesting. And then then um, ended up moving back to Australia. Um, and uh, started working in Australia. Took a, took about a year off. Actually, it was a bit more than a year off, um, just doing some small, medium enterprise consulting, mm -hmm. um, just to have a break from pharmaceuticals. And then um, ended up being um, a business unit director at a, a company called MDI, which uh, its claim to fame is the famous Green Whistle. Ah, that is quite a famous whistle. Yeah. So, um, you know, that was, that was quite interesting because that product, that product was launched in the early 70s. The, the 1970s, not the 2070s. <laughs> um, not far um, away. Yeah, so um, 
that was that was a really interesting role. Um, got me involved heavily into the um, pain sort of side of medicine because prior to that had been mainly cardiovascular. Um, although I did have some experience with pain medications in Indonesia as head of marketing, and um, yeah, really was able to turn that product around. It had been in decline a few years, and we were able to turn it into from negative growth into I think it went when I was there. I think it was plus positive 15 odd percent from memory in Australia. Um, plus we were launching internationally as well. So taking out the international, we are always going to get a big growth for a product that has never been there before. The Australian market turned around quite nicely. Um, but yeah, it was, it was interesting. It was an inhaled drug, which was an interesting aspect as well because most of the drugs were opioids or of course tablets. Mm-hmm. And I think it also, gave me the opportunity to be introduced to that whole opioid versus other pain relief side of things. So the segue coming in now. Yeah. Well, so from there is where I basically then moved into the the cannabis business. And I I started as CEO of a a company called EC Pharma, Mm. um, which we, we set up looking at, um, at uh, dosing uh, and vaping as an opportunity. Um, and I was only, I was there for a short time, but, um, then there was, uh, some, there was an opportunity at, at Love Spot Health that came up and some of the people at EC Pharma thought it'd be, um, it'd be good to get involved. Um, and so, um, yeah, they, they wanted me to move over and, and take over the business as CEO at, uh, Love Spot Health and, and met with Rod and the rest of the team and, um, yeah, I, I certainly think that where they were going and um, the direction they were taking was certainly well in line with where where my thoughts were on the, as a pharmaceutical industry uh, person and uh, leader of that industry. It's it's a great opportunity, I think, with LSH where they're going with vaping. Um, but also, I think with the, the attitude of both EC Pharma and um, Life Spot Health, being very much focused on the science which coming from a strong pharma background and especially with a company like Pfizer, um, the ethics are incredibly important. And I think they become even more important in a fledgling, fledgling um, industry such as the cannabis industry, mm. um, where as much as we wish it wasn't true, there are, there are stigmas attached to the cannabis industry that are not fair and they're not correct most of the time, but they are there. And so ethics uh, become incredibly important to make sure that you're not seen as, um, you know, just an illicit seller of drugs um, under the guise of medicine to get people high. That's it's not where I want this industry to be. I don't think anyone does. Um, and it's not where the industry is going to go ultimately, I don't think. Yeah, amazing. Well, that is quite a story. Um, it's amazing to hear, you know, the different realms. Well, there's not too many people. Well, there are a few people coming from the pharma industry into cannabis, but you, I, I hear more stories of people coming from, you know, very non-associated areas to cannabis. So it's great to know that there are people coming from the pharmaceutical angle as well within the space. And so thanks well, for sharing. It's interesting. I, I saw it as a, uh, an online forum um, just a couple of months ago, someone made a comment about um, uh, and I commenting on a certain person and their experience and um, that they weren't from their industry, referring to the cannabis industry as their industry. Mm. I, I think that attitude is probably not an attitude that's going to get anyone very far because ultimately, if we decide that the cannabis industry is going to be legitimised through medicine, mm then it shouldn't be the cannabis industry and everyone else. It should be let's introduce cannabis and medicinal cannabis as a legitimate therapeutic option for doctors. Okay, so now we're part of the medical industry and it's not an us or them. It's, uh, right, let's work together. What do the patients need? What do the doctors need? How do we achieve the sort of standards that are expected from medical devices and medical products in order to achieve those? Because as soon as you try to keep working outside the system, I don't know, it might be, you know, there's the, again, there's a history and a, a history attached to a lot of um, people 
who were originally pushing for cannabis to become legalised, you can't fight the man. You're much better off fighting from within the system and bringing legitimacy to the, the product than trying to, you know, sort of say, well, you know, big pharma, big medicine, they're all bad, we're all good. At the end of the day, it's got to be about what the patients and what, what benefit you can give the patients. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, yeah, I think with that pharma approach as well, you you know, we're likely to see some really interesting innovation as well because, you know, that's traditionally where I think the, the battle has been has been won amongst originator companies and trying to get a new product um, that works better than all the others. So I'm really excited to see how the innovation works. But of course, I think the sort of prevailing attitude from a lot of people in the you know, the traditional cannabis community is, well, if we have big pharma here, then, you know, we're going to see cannabis remaining uh, unaffordable. And and I sort of, I, I see that as something that's going to be resolved with economies of scale over time um, as, you know, more and more production happens. But um, yeah. It- In saying that, we, when you see big pharma take control of, of medicine you, you actually see some of the prices coming right down when you're talking about everyday medicines at the pharmacy yeah absolutely because they're also depending on the country but in the majority of countries um you know most pharmaceutical companies have basically one buyer it's a monopoly system and that buyer is generally the government and mm. so if you want to if you want to operate in that country you got to meet the government's pricing and the government's pricing and the pharmaceutical pricing isn't just something that people pull out of their hats. You know, the, there's um, the pharmacoeconomics and the um, cost effectiveness studies that need to be done. Um, you know, they're, they're basing some of their decisions on, on pricing and what's a viable pricing option mm. based on what else is in the market and how much it costs and qualities. You know, you know the, how many extra days of quality life are you going to get out of this product mm. versus something half the price. Mm. Uh, so, for example, when, when we were launching Eloquus, um, you know, we were up against warfarin. Now, warfarin's a 70-year-old drug and it literally costs a fraction of a cent per tablet. You know, it's extremely cheap. Um, but it is also a major problem for patients in terms of side effects drug interactions, food interactions, um, very narrow therapeutic window can cause, um, can either be non-effective or cause a lot of internal bleeding. And so there's just so many problems. Um, I remember talking to a cardiologist in the US and he said, at the time, he said, Matt, you, you know, the number one um, reason cardiologists get sued in the US? I don't know. Oh, well, it's because of warfare because the patient gets out of, out of whack. And sometimes it's just they ate the wrong food for a couple of days and it threw their balance out. So they, they're taking into all these things into account. And I, I agree with what Mitch is saying because quite often that economy of scale allows companies to actually bring the price down. Mm. And I think part of the equation for successfully launching medicines. And let's let's talk about cannabis as a medicine instead of some separate thing that you know, it is or it isn't. But in terms of medicines, um, you know, it's great to have a great medicine that's got efficacy and safety and all the other factors. But if it's not affordable, if the patient can't get it, then it doesn't work. Mm. And you know, the most effective tablet, the most effective treatment for any patient is the tablet they take. Don't take that tablet because they can't afford it or for whatever other reason. Mm. It's got zero efficacy and the safety doesn't matter. Correct. Yeah, very interesting. It's funny when you when you say that, like we, the um, looking at cannabis as a pharmaceutical versus, you know, the rest of the cannabis industry versus the pharma industry. I know that at times... Um, it feels like even within the pharmaceutical uh, framework that exists, that there happens to be those two camps in that, for example, we have this S3 um, status that's been given recently, CBD um, in, in certain lower dosages, but yet they're still uh, exempt from compounding, for example, in that model, or they're looking at putting 
this is more in the GMP, uh, sorry, in the in the compounding space, but looking at making uh, inputs GMP, for example, and considering kind of courses of action that are not uh, beholden to any other uh, ingredient in this in the SUSMP. Um, so I, I feel like there is this kind of divide, and there is this special status of cannabis uh, beyond maybe some other chemicals or or other um, drugs in in the Australian pharmaceutical system. Yeah, I'd agree with that. But I also think that's a necessary situation to be in right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose where I see the industry at the moment is in very much in a transitional phase. Um, you know, it, it years ago was obviously any, any cannabis industry was illicit. It was illegal and it was black market. Um, it's been able to evolve from that into a legalised um, format of some sort in, in most countries. Um, but keep in mind, though, I'll, we've seen the shift from the, the people who made it when it was listed have, didn't just drop out overnight. Mm. They became legitimate, legitimate themselves. Mm. Um, they bought some of the old ideas and theories and, and attitudes even. And I think that's where a lot of, you know, anti-big farmer, anti-government, you know, stick it to the man sort of attitude comes from. Mm. Um, it's since then evolved even further from being taken over and, and certainly from what I see, um, and I, I think as you mentioned before, you've got a lot of non-medical people involved. I think if you have a close look, you'll find a lot of them are venture capitalists and, you know, um, bankers and investors, no medical background whatsoever. Yeah. They've jumped on the money train. And certainly that was the case a few years ago. Um, I think where we are now is seeing a lot of that, a lot of the people hunting fast money have moved out. The people who are really committed to looking at this as legitimate medicine are moving in more and more. And I think that's where you're seeing more of the pharmaceutical um, people coming into the industry. Mm -hmm. And I think you're just seeing this gradual evolution but I think where we are right now is that stage between it being um, early stage um, legitimate medicine and actually becoming a registered legal therapeutic option for patients. Mm. And that's going to take some years. And, and the big thing is, and this comes back to the price of drugs too, this is where the cost is. This is where the investment has to happen because Clinical, a lot of, I think a lot of people assume that companies make big money because, you know, to put a caps- make a capsule or to make a little bit of oil doesn't cost a lot of money. And technically they're right. Um, but that first tablet in the pharmaceutical industry, that can cost half a billion dollars. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, it's the, I think there was a famous episode on the West Wing, or well, famous in the pharmaceuticals uh, industry at the time where, you know, they, they made that point. You know, who's paying for the first tablet off the rank? Yeah. Every other tablet can be half cent. Yeah, we can give it to Africa at a cheap price and all this stuff. That first tablet, there might have been half a billion dollars of research. I think it's on average half a billion dollars worth of research and 15 years. is, the, is uh, That's the development timeframe and costs for a new pharmaceutical ent- entity Yeah, that actually makes a profit after tax because I think it was something like only 10% make a profit after tax too. For these companies. Yeah, so, you know, the, there are the, the price of drug research is quite high. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the advantage we've got with cannabis industry is a lot of very fast moving, very agile companies like, like LifeSpot Health and, and others who are able to actually do some pretty decent clinical trials that hold regulatory standards. Um, and they're being done quite cheap in, in quite a short period of time, too. Yeah, and I think half a billion dollars and, and 15 years to do. Yeah, well, it's kind of like that that that's, um, notion of if you're hiring somebody who's a consultant and they cost, I don't know, big money like Andrew's lawyer fees. No, I'm just kidding. But, um, but, you know, if you're hiring somebody that's got 30 years worth of experience to consult on something and they do that job within 20 minutes, you're like, why was I paying thousands of dollars for that? It's not, you weren't paying thousands of dollars for that. You were paying thousands of dollars for the 30 years of work beforehand. That it ends up making that process take 20 minutes. Yeah, well, I mean, it reminds me, there was a, there was a famous story, I, I think, I mean, like a lot of these analogies on Facebook, I think it might have been, 
where the guy um, the guy walks into a um, a factory where the, the engine has seized up and they he's got to go out there and they say well how much and he says oh you know it's it's thousand dollars an hour and um, they go all right well oh no it's thousand dollars for the call out or something like that so they you know oh, we need it done it's thousand dollars go out and he walks up gets a spanner hits the engine on the side and it fires right up and I look at him and say hang on what do we pay you a thousand dollars to bash it on the side you know that's not worth thousand dollars said no, hitting it on the side, the side of the engine is not worth $1,000. But knowing where to hit it on the side of the engine, that's why you paid $1,000. Yeah, <laughs> correct. And, and, I, and I think that analogy works well with that kind of capsule analogy. And the other thing I wanted to say about uh, your commentary just before, um, in terms of this uh, like anti-establishment kind of um, notion amongst the cannabis community, I think there's another side to that in which I feel... Some people are coming maybe from that more alternative, hippied out type space, if you will, um, and coming back to the, I guess, more modest, modern Western medicine in the, in the forms of like integrative medicine, for example. And oh, maybe cool. I think cannabis could be a vehicle to kind of bring people back to, you know, progressive contemporary medicine. Oh, look, without a doubt, I think, um, you know, there's the, you know, the, the sort of uh, caricature hippie um, yeah. sort of character that everyone sort of over overplays, I think, with the cannabis industry. Because, to be honest, I think most of the players are extremely uh, on top of it, and, and they're they're not thinking in those sort of terms. And being a plant, I think a lot of people say, "Well, I can grow it in my backyard. Why do I need that?" I think what we're seeing now is as we shift away from things like rec, uh, not recreational, but certainly the more recreational aspect in Australia and looking at it as a more legitimate medicine, um, people are starting to realise that, yes, you can take a flower um, and you can smoke it and you'll get some therapeutic benefit. Digoxin, which is a great uh, long-term cardiovascular medicine, you know, that comes from the digitalis plant and it's, it's, you know, it's in the same way. Yes, you could crush it up and chew it and you'll get the same effects because digoxin is in the plant. Does that make it the best and most effective way to take it? Is it the safest way to take it? Well, no, it's not. It doesn't mean it's not effective. You could grow, to, you can grow that plant in your backyard theoretically. Yeah. I think that's where we are too. I think one of the things I find is, is interesting is until we get clinical trials, we don't know a lot, of, a lot about some of the synergistic effects or the so-called entourage effects, mm. um, which could be very, very valuable to know about. But also where we are at the moment is I think people are saying, well, we want to have CBD um, for certain conditions where we think it works very well. And there's quite a bit of overlap between CBD and THC in terms of the apparent therapeutic effect. Um, there's stages where you don't want THC, mm. especially when it comes to you know, parents who have to drive or mm. patients who have to drive and so forth. You can't get that from a flower because you're going to get that mix. So we have to start looking at the independent components. What are they doing? And then we can start to explore how, is, how are they synergizing with each other, if they are or if they're not. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I can go, I can make pasta at home, but I'm still going to go out and try Gordon Ramsay's restaurant because it's better than mine. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and I think there's, there's, you know, there's a lot of years and, 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 and effort in science probably behind that as well um so I, I think that that's probably not the best example but it's that kind of thing like it just you're, you're, um, you're, don't sell your tin spaghetti short though mitch i actually oh, I don't mind it. yeah yeah i'll make it a special for you thank you but but i think the other big thing here is to do is just look again it comes down to um especially it seems with cannabis there's a lot of individual effect um mm. and there's just not enough in research to know is that because one strain of cannabis plant has slightly different components to it that make it give certain other effects. Is it a phenotypic response by patients or a genotypic response? Um, is it something else that we're, we're not aware of yet? So I think certainly in the early stage, I think being able to have specific formulations for specific patient um, disease states and certain treatments is going to be where it starts. 
And then as the science comes out, people start to realise that, you know, if I add a little bit of uh, terpene A, myrcene, for example, to CBD isolate, then I know exactly what's in that formula and I can actually then measure the effect of myrcene in a CBD mixture versus a mixture that has just CBD isolate and no myrcene. Mm-hmm. And maybe they find there's no effect. Yep. Maybe they find there's a big effect. Maybe they find when they then do a next stage and adding lemonine that that has a synergistic effect. But we're not there yet. We're, yeah. we're not there. And I think um, to really legitimise the medical side, we, we need to get to those points. Yeah, and, and made difficult, I think, to some extent, just by the fact that I guess enough baseline research has been done on CBD and THC as major cannabinoids that the commercial incentive, I think, is there for medicines with those compounds to feature in a dominant way. Whereas you got to ask which companies are going to maybe spend uh, millions of dollars doing clinical trials, examining the role of the minor cannabinoids or or terpenes. But I I think it's, um, yeah, it's definitely uh, where the research direction is going in. Um, If I can talk to you actually for a bit about vaping because yeah. um yeah. we're not going to do um, <laughs> we got, got sidetracked sorry yeah we get uh, it's okay. we, like to get we, can, we can we can keep talking about sticking it to the man and all that sort of stuff <laughs> I don't mind, but uh I, I love all that but uh no i um i'm just i think you know for and i i never like to make assumptions about what our audience is familiar with but i think our audience would generally understand the difference between smoking and vaping smoking referring to burning cannabis and inhaling smoky fumes containing combustible products that are potentially toxic or carcinogenic, whereas vaping is sort of electronically heating um, oils, uh, wax or plant materials in a battery-powered vaporizer. Um, I know that LifeSpot uh, has um, an interest in in vaping as, a, I guess, a method of, of delivery for, for cannabis medicine. Um, are you able to maybe generally just talk to us about how vaping can um, can yeah be distinguished from people who might be taking oil through just dropping under you know sublingually from a tincture bottle, um, and and you know um, yeah your experience. I like the use case for that. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I think vaping is a really really exciting part of the industry, um, especially when you look overseas. It's a very very popular form of of taking. Um, cannabis um, and in Australia it's just it's it's not there um, in any large numbers I think there's one uh, sorry two um, vapes that are registered with the TGA um, that's the uh, I think it's the stores and Bickle volcano and uh, um, mighty medic or, or something um, mm-hmm. nice very quality high quality units but they're also about 450 500 dollars for the I think the mighty medics about the four fifty five hundred dollar mark, and someone was telling me the other day. Um, volcanoes upwards, I think. Volcanoes about a thousand, yeah. um, you know, and they're not. The volcanoes are quite a big unit. It's a desktop unit. It's not portable. Um, mm-hmm. and, yeah, I've got I've got one. It's uh, one of the a prototype from the nineties, actually. Yeah, <laughs> Rich thinks it's portable. He takes it out with him. So <laughs> Sets it up at a at a pub. Drops to the, the top of his car. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, to job interviews. Yeah. <laughs> great look, great product, very high quality. But the reality is, the majority of patients aren't going to try vaping when that initial outlay is five hundred to a thousand dollars. It's mm. not practical for the majority of people. Mm. Um, they also, even the Mighty Medic, which is you know, it's from what I've seen, quite a decent unit as well. But it's a you know, it's a big handful of a unit. It's not something very discreet. Um, but I think what's really exciting for me is if you look at all the forms of cannabis that are on sale in Australia now, they are more long acting. So you need to take them on a regular daily basis um, and they build up in your system over time, maybe a week, maybe two weeks uh, before you start to really see an effect. There's nothing that's really fast acting. So for patients who do need that fast-acting relief, um, vaping to me, along with smoking, is really the only options they have. Um, the vape, especially, is, is in my opinion, from, from a medical standpoint, a much better option because, Andrew, as you mentioned, it doesn't 
you don't get the, um, the toxins and carcinogenics that happen as a result of burning. Um, is vaping 100% safe? Well, no, but no drug is. Um, but it's interesting, the European or the UK government are basically taking the approach that is for nicotine um, cessation, they would much rather have patients on a vape than on cigarettes because, you know, it, first of all, it's, it's, it's the harm reduction is, is much better. And they're sort of putting out figures around, you know, saying, oh, 95% better and safer than smoking. Now, it's, it's very early days. There's not a lot of research in vaping, but certainly all the, all the components of a cigarette aren't there in a vape. It's a very simple formula in, in the case of nicotine, it's nicotine, um, it's uh, propylene glycol, um, oh, sorry, vegetable glycol, propylene glycerol and flavoring. Um, in the case of cannabis, it's usually um, CBD or THC, either as an isolate or distillate. Um, it's some sort of carrier oil and probably some terpenes for flavor. So it's, it's very pure in terms of what it is. Um, but the exciting thing is you, when you take an oil or a tincture or a capsule or anything oral, it's passing through first pass metabolism through your stomach, your liver and so forth before it hits your bloodstream and hits the target or target area or the target receptors that you want the cannabinoids to work in. With vaping, and, with vaping, what's happening is it's going into your lungs, which is a huge absorption site for, for a lot of drugs. Um, so it goes in and it goes straight into your bloodstream. And so you're not losing a large amount of it due to metabolism. Unlike smoking, you're not losing a lot of it due to burning. Mm. And so you're getting more of it into your bloodstream quickly, which is a great advantage to patients. Now, for a lot of patients, they're going to, it's going to be for patients who don't need that fast onset, it might not be suitable for them. It maybe it depends on the patient. And some patients, for example, chronic pain patients, they might be on a baseline therapy of capsules or opioids or whatever pain relief and then use a vape as a top-up when they have breakthrough pain. But it's really exciting. Like the bioavailability um, that you get from um, a oral ingestible is about 5 to 10% of the cannabinoids reaching your target sites. It's quite low. Um, for smoking, it's about 30%. A lot of it's getting burnt up. Um, for vaping, it's estimated to be 50 to 80%. Mm. So it's quite a bit higher. And that, that's um, cost effective. I'm, I'm just sort of musing. So based on that quick onset, and the, that much higher rate of bioavailability, does that mean that even your sort of one mil cartridge, say, um, that a patient is going to you know, take a bit of time to actually get through that because with each um, vape, they're getting uh, quite a bit out of, out of the cartridge. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, if you look at most of the cartridges out there overseas, they're usually around half a mil. Um, a lot of the newer, uh, especially in the medical side, are going a little bit higher than that, usually about 1 to 1.25, somewhere in that range, mils, you know, in a pod. Um, but they're also um, high concentrations generally as well within those pods and the carrier oils. So it allows the patient really, and, it, and it's going to vary from patient to patient, but 1.1 mil pod, I would expect to get somewhere around um, a month plus yeah. potentially. Now that's going to vary on the patient, on the severity of their condition, what, what they're trying to treat, how heavy their symptoms are, all those sort of things, because some people will take it more, some people will take it less. Mm. But it, I think it represents um, very good value for the patient. Yeah, um, absolutely. And how many how many doses would you say in one point one mil, uh, roughly? Again, it varies very much on the patient at this stage. Um, but the the current some of the current vapes are out. We're looking at about two fifty to three hundred inhales. Right. So that's definitely. I think Definitely, yeah. you'd hope it would last a month, maybe yeah. some. <laughs> well, again, it depends on the patient. And if it's breakthrough pain, you might find they take a bit more than someone who says has got anxiety. Sure. Insomnia. But, um, 
you know, the, the next holy grail, I think, for us, and, and we're seeing this overseas as well, is to develop a bait that's actually got um, some dosing behind it um, mm. and dosing that is consistent and working, um, working well. So that'll be the, I think, the next stage. Um, yeah, it's interesting with the, with that dosing. Again, you're looking at you know body weight, uh, uh, gender, the, things like that that actually affect what an optimal dose is. Depending, you know, if you're 50 kilos or 150 kilos, there's quite a bit of a, a disparity there. Are, are there machines out there that would account for that? Not not for individuals, but I think that the area I'm talking about with dosing is that every inhale delivers a specific amount. Right. We've calculated that in every inhale is with the current vape on average somewhere between two and 2.4 milligrams of CBD. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, keeping in mind that, you know, um, Andrew's, you know, Andrew's into surfing. So he's, he's, he's only holding his breath when he gets dumped by a wave. Um, uh, Regularly. That, then. Okay. So yeah, probably no, I could breath. probably, well, I could get maybe 10 megs in. Off he's one. probably got a good <laughs> breath hole. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm despite my, my current, uh, winter layer of, uh, whale blubber, um, you know, I, I did a, I've, I'm a certified freediver, um, and I do, do spearfishing. Um, my inhale is going to be different to Andrew's and it's going to be different to yours, Mitch. It's all dependent on, on, on those sort of things. How hard I can inhale is probably, we're all very different. Sure. So I might get. 2.53 milligrams, Andrew might get two milligrams and, and Mitch, you might get 2.4. We just don't know. So A lot of gas bagging and full of wind, they do call me, so I'd expect a high number. To be honest. <laughs> so I, I guess my point is, though, a lot, of the, a lot of the dosing out there at the moment overseas is a time dose. It's basically saying in three seconds, we'll cut you off. Yeah. In three seconds, we're all going to have different amounts we inhale. Yeah, for sure. So we're trying to work, we're, we're working with developers at the moment to bring something to the market where it doesn't matter how long you inhale, it's going to cut off after it calculates that you've actually taken X amount per inhale. Now, different patients have different requirements. So maybe you need two inhales to get your dosing. Some might need three, some may only need one, but at least you know every time you inhale that this is how much you're taking. Consistency. Yeah, that's not the case right I'm guessing that then plays into... Yeah, part of the the conversation that the doctors would be having with patients when they consider, you know, what's the appropriate um, uh, medicinal cannabis therapy if if it's deemed that the patient's eligible and and may be appropriate for that kind of treatment. But yeah, I mean, with a tincture bottle, yeah, whilst there is going to be some variation, um, generally the patient can can assess. Okay, if I do a full dropper, I'm going to get one milligram. Um, yeah. But at the same time, to your point earlier about onset times, um, if the, if they're trying to deal with um, breakthrough pain, then you know it might be more um, appropriate for them to to have a vape um, because it's just the faster onset. And I think for some patients, what we're going to see is them moving from tinctures, from capsules, from various other formats onto vapes. But I think also for a lot of patients, they're going to have it on top of their baseline therapy. Mm, yeah it's going to be very dependent on the patient and the condition yeah and i think also on on another note and it's something that we always consider when we're talking about medicinal cannabis or cannabis in general which is different to maybe other you know uh drugs out there is that you the the recreational market does get considered in the scope of cannabis whether you like it or not and i think that that vaping ties much more into the idea of how cannabis is consumed, you know, via inhalation um, from a, I don't want to say lifestyle perspective, but it's, it, it seems to be, you know, a, a more familiar course of action rather than taking drops on the tongue or, you know, sublingual or water soluble products that we're seeing coming out overseas, things like that. Um, so it, it, it's the familiarity of it, like the vaping and, and smoking industry are so closely tied that I, it feels familiar, I think. Yeah, I think we've got to be careful that it's not positioned as, as the same, too similar to smoking. Because I, and a lot of people do sort of think, oh, well, smoking, vaping, the same thing. And they're actually very different medically. And t- t- totally, totally. 
vaping's oh. far better, but but I just mean from a psychological, almost almost like a marketing perspective, that it feels uh, in some ways. That, would that not be a consideration? Or I, for me, not so much. And my background okay. is pharmaceutical marketing, but for me, I think one of the big things is convenience, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and convenience for the patient in not only just convenience, but also a part of convenience people forget about is I think being discreet. Yeah. The majority of patients don't like to advertise that they have a condition, even if that condition is very common. Yeah. You know, people don't go out to a restaurant with their friends and say, Hey, Jeff, how are you doing? Yeah, great. I've got high cholesterol and blood pressure. <laughs> I don't want other people to know that's very private to them. Yeah. If they did so, say that though, you would say, have I got a statin for you? Um, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and I mean, the thing is, is that people want to take the medicines discreetly. Again, unless it's a very, very active condition, you don't seem to go out. You, you, look, I'm, I'm in, I'm 50 now, and you know, at my age, forever, all of my friends are on tablets of some sort. Um, but none of them, you, you never go out to dinner with them and say, "Hey, hang on a sec, I just take my tablets." Yeah. They won't wait till they go home. They never take them with them, even if they should have them with them. Um, yeah, you don't get your Lipitor out and like trade little capsules at the dinner kind of. No, I have been to some. I have been to some conferences where people were um, taking Viagra out and trying to trade those, but that's a that's a whole other story. We'll, we'll leave that for <laughs> yeah. for another conversation. I think. Well, yeah, I feel like there's going to be at least a part two with this one, so I'm looking forward to hearing how the after party. I think went a- Andrew's been to a few parties like that, but they, I don't think they were they were pharmaceutical. I'm not sure. Yeah. No. I was, I was there by myself as well, which is, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's um, really, that's really, a, um, worrying. <laughs> but I think what I'm, what I'm getting at is, um, if you go back and I've got a few interesting examples, um, that I always have on my desk here, you know, if you go back to what an original vape was and that's, that's an old nicotine vape, quite stylish looking, but oops, it's not exactly discreet to hold it. You take one of those to, to a restaurant, someone's going to notice you're having a vape. Yeah. Um, you know, you then got things like, you know, the um, one of this, this unit here, which is quite popular overseas at one stage. Um, and this one's actually for flour, specifically flour. Mm. Um, you know, you've got to load it up with a little pre-filled baggie of whatever's in there. I can honestly say in this one, it's chamomile tea. Sure. Because I got very <laughs> worried when someone sent this through me to with a mail and I said, What is this? <laughs> and they said, No, no, it's coming along too. But you can see again the size, mm. that's not discreet. Yep. And that's probably half the size of the mighty medic, to be honest. Yeah. Um also though, with something like that, or even with a joint, you're going to smell the cannabis. Absolutely. Wow. And so not only in terms of visually, but the smell of cannabis, a lot of people, let's be honest, you know, someone that has a joint anywhere nearby, most people go, oh, hang on, someone's smoking cannabis here. Absolutely. Very distinct smell. Hmm. Um, you know, you get into more modern units like this, um, this unit, which comes from um, a company that just recently launched in the UK. Um, you know, very, very small unit again, much more discreet. Mm. Um, yep. you know a patient could hold that in their hand very quietly get it out of their pocket just you know that's it no one needs to know mm-hmm. much better unit um and then you've got other units that are even even smaller like this one mm. which i mean if you look at that i could have that pull it out of a restaurant use it for a breakthrough pain put it back in my pocket no one would ever know and I yeah. think that's both in size, but also in the smell of the vapor that comes out. There's very, usually very little cloud, far mm-hmm. less than smoking. And it doesn't have that very distinct cannabis smell. And that's especially important with the oils because the smell that you get out of it is only what's been heated and vaporized from the terpenes, the CBD isolate, which doesn't have a scent and whatever terpenes and can, um, oil carrier oil is in there. Yeah, well, there's no way you can... Yeah, I'm just thinking at the restaurant example you gave, there's no way you're pulling out a tincture bottle and, you know, dropping a few under the tongue without people... Everyone's going to go... What's this guy doing? Oh, you're going to go, hey, can I have some of that? Appropriate or not, 
But I don't think most people would even be comfortable doing that. And then you've got Mitch know. rolling out the volcano and sitting that on the restaurant <laughs> table. And well, then you're getting ridiculous. With the volcano, you've got that whole bag thing that goes with it. You need a power supply to plug it into as well. I think the... Um, Bring your own extension cords, your four-way you power board. What you do is you draw a couple of eyes on it and put a couple of arm extensions on it. That's the whole, the whole floppy guy thing in the, uh, on the table. And everyone goes, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's advertised. That's perfect. All restaurants lining up for a go. <laughs> well, the, the other problem with oil is that I could just leak yeah. in your pocket. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it can. Um, you would hope, but I mean, look, any, any capsule containing oil can leak. I think the modern, the more modern ones, I mean, this one's from, um, this is one of the units from overseas that we, we were looking at. Um, so, I mean, and, if you had a, a tincture oil is what oh, I mean. Yeah. But I mean, most, most of them are fairly well sealed, but you're right. Um, but also just a, a 30 mil bottle with mm. a dropper on it sitting in your pocket is not very discreet. I mean, if you look at something like that. Yeah. 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 I think it's worth just mentioning that. So, so you, I think you talk, you spoke before about, um, it was Mighty Medic and, and the other one, which, um, yeah, the two sort of approved uh, by the TGA um, and that other vaping products are available um, via prescription, but um, are in the, you know, perhaps in the process of, of getting registered. But I, I think that point about, you know, yes, you know, some products might be registered and, and fully approved and everything, but if your starting point with a, a medicinal cannabis therapy is you've got to buy equipment that's going to set you back up to $1,000 and then you've got to get things on top of that, um, it just limits the range of people who might be able to, um, to actually receive that because it's just unaffordable. Yeah, and a lot of people, I think that the people who are more likely to go and spend 500 bucks on a, on a mighty medical, 1,000 bucks on a on a vapor are people who either have a very serious um, condition that is long-term and they already know and they've already tried it somehow to know that cannabis vaping is going to work very well for them. Yeah. Or speaking to people in the industry, they're people who aren't using it for medical reasons at all <laughs> and it's recreational and they smoke a lot. Yeah, and they think that that thousand dollar investment is a good investment for them, and good on them. That's that's what they're doing. But um, uh, uh, I think the other interesting thing that's going to change too with that is is the TGA recently put out a document um, just last month looking at um, standards for importing nicotine called TGO one one ten. And some, one of the troubles I've been having throughout the last six months is, is just really trying to find the status of where vapes are. Do we need to register them? Because there were some statements made by um, TJ suggesting we may not have to. And the draft document certainly seems to indicate that, yeah, there are certain vapes that will need to be registered as medical devices, but there's quite a few that won't, be, won't need to be registered as medical devices, which cuts down on the price because it can be... You know, a couple of hundred thousand potentially to actually register it at Vice. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Um, so I think one of the big things is seems to be um, if the product is going to be refillable, which is the case with some of these, you know, these older units like that, or you know, the cannabis units like that, where you're putting different stuff in, it could be anything. Um, they're probably more likely, I think, going to be registered products. Um, but for some of the newer products like these, where they're referring on what they call a pod system. So these, these old ones are referred to as the 510 threads because that's the type of you know, thread that they use to open and close them and you know, put them up so you can fill them. Um, those are probably registered, but these ones, these pod systems, this one probably is, this one is, um, you know, they've got a pod in them like this. Mm. And that's that's got your cannabis oil in there. Um, unfortunately, my lighting just turned off. Let me see. But um, you know, that's got cannabis oil in it, but it's sealed. You can't. You you actually have to have to break this to get into it, and then it's unusual. And mm. and the advantage of something like that is basically you've got a device controller with battery that you can keep, you go through the pod, you finish that, 
you'll either throw it away or just return it to your pharmacy for disposal. Um, and you get a new one to put in it. Um, because you can't really break into it, it means that your supply chain is much more secure. So if we look at Ivali and the, you know, the vape lung incidents that happened in the US in late 2019, um, that happened because of illicit, illicit dealers selling vape oil um, to patients. And yes, it was cheaper. And yes, they, they didn't have prescriptions and all the rest of it, but they were adding vitamin E acetate. And there's not 100% proof that that's what caused it, but certainly what the, what the um, CDC in America found was that all the cases that they studied had traces of vitamin E acetate. That was the only common denominator. And um, vitamin E acetate is used as a thickening agent mm. uh, for THC mixtures. So they're fairly certain they know exactly what caused it. But again, these things didn't, it didn't, doesn't appear that this happened through um, legitimate channels. It happened through the illicit market. So by securing that chain, patients can know with these sealed pod systems that I'm getting what came from the manufacturer. Mm. It hasn't been hijacked, opened up. Contaminated. Put out of it, put heart, you know, a thickening agent to, to cut, the, cut the liquid with something else to make more money. It, it just helps secure that chain. I think that's important for patients. In the pharmaceutical industry, Supply chain integrity is incredibly important. And again, this is where, as the industry moves towards that more pharmaceutical model, safety, supply, safety, adverse event reporting, channel supply chain security, all those factors that are, are not really, not necessarily always there in the cannabis industry at that point, they will become the norm. And I see that as, the, as a great thing for patients and doctors alike. Well, what about that refilling aspect? I mean, if you're saying that the vape um, pens say that that can be refilled are the ones that would need to be registered, um, does that then create the potential that we might see single-use vape products coming out? Um, are they just too expensive to do, or um... I, think, I think you could, but I don't think I don't think it'll happen. And the reason I say that is because uh, if you look at Canada. They've had, they're, they're, you know, 10 years ahead of us in terms of the cannabis industry. And for a time there, um, disposable pens did come out and were very, very popular. We're finding now that um, in actual fact, that market's declining greatly and people are all moving to the pod systems. Yeah. And, um, and one of the reasons, there's two reasons, I think, for that. One is manufacturing. Um, doing a disposable um, vape can be actually quite a lot more time in fact, time consuming because mm. um, instead of just a pod system where it caps, you've got to build it all into the unit and just putting that through a filling machine with it where you've got, you know, you try putting that through a filling machine versus putting that through a filling machine. That's yeah. a logistical difference. Um, but the other thing is just um, environmentally. Uh, people don't want to get something mm. and throw it away. Um, I mean, ideal, that's where something like that becomes much more ideal because, yeah, look, you are still having to throw that part away. You can recycle a certain percentage of that as well, but the costs involved in setting up a recycling effort are actually cost prohibitive. It puts the price of the product up too high. Um, but the majority you're reusing, these things like these should last at least a year, if not several years, if looked after properly. They're, they're rechargeable, so... You know, mm. um, there's no reason why they wouldn't last for quite a while and you're only having to then replace that part rather than the whole thing. So I, I don't think the disposable ones will come out here. If they do, I would predict they're a different market. So we did some research in Canada and what it appeared to be was we, we segmented the, the industry, uh, the customers into two groups. When I say we segmented, the market research segmented it into two groups. And we had the, uh, what we called the medically mature, which was your older patient, 30 plus. They were using cannabis to treat a condition that they had. They were willing to spend a lot more money on making sure it had quality and safety. And they were looking for the best possible medical outcome. They weren't buying the disposables. They were just buying good quality vape pens 
good quality oils to go with them and so forth. It was the other group, which we which was nicknamed the budget buzz crowd. <laughs> and, and it's an appropriate term. They, totally. were, they were out to get a buzz as cheaply as possible. Uni and students, maybe. I don't know. They the and the stereotypical guy was your uni student, not a lot of money. If it wasn't for cannabis, if it wasn't cannabis, the same guy was going down and buying the cheapest, nastiest alcohol or beer from the shop he could to get drunk. Yeah, yeah. Um, Passion. Same, it's, and, and it's it's the same. Mental- it's basically, you last week, Mitch. Yeah, basically, it's me. Yeah, I fit into both at the same time. I don't even know how it's possible. <laughs> but but yeah, but it was interesting because that, that stereotype is there, and it's there for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and they were the ones buying those disposables because they were cheap the mixtures that were in them weren't exactly high quality or very good. Bit of acetate uh, in there? Sorry? <laughs> Bit of acetate in there maybe to thin it out? Vitamin E. Vitamin I don't e. know about the acetate, but God knows what else was in there. But um, yeah. I, think, I think in all fairness, I think the, the stuff that was in there was nothing wrong with it. But I'm, based on the pricing they had, I'm not suggesting that it was probably, you know, developed from the highest quality uh, flour that they sure. had available at the time sure. is probably the scraps. Yeah. Speaking of speaking of the budget buzz group, I, I guess probably one of our, um, I guess last topics. Uh, I'm just conscious of the time, but yeah. is um, the I know we've talked about CBD, but speaking about that buzz, uh, the THC market uh, on the mm-hmm. medical side, of course, um, for vaping is that something that uh, LifeSpot has their their eyes on? Oh, absolutely. Um, we, I mean. It's, I mean, we're, we're very specifically in the device part of the business and we partner with other groups like EC Pharma and um, uh, other groups like Decasa Compounding to, uh, for them to actually supply the oils that go in our pods. Gotcha. Um, and they're selling, we, we, we basically sell the pods to them um, and they, they sell the pods and their formulas um, to patients through doctors. But... Yeah, I mean, THC is an interesting one because I think like any medication, whether it's CBD, THC, or a statin or whatever, it has its place for the right patient. I think the difficulty with THC becomes the fact that the psychotropic effects um, are problematic for a lot of patients, Um, especially if they, you know, a lot of patients have to drive for work or they have to, they've got kids that they need to drive to school. And of course, once they've taken THC, it's in their system and it does stay in the system for quite a while. And it's detectable. If you get pulled over and get drug tested and they find THC, it's no different to having uh, been over 0.05. That, that's why I always take THC when I arrive at work, I'm never in the car on the way there. <laughs> Uh, they, yeah. they, they like that probably still in your system and detectable on the way home in the morning <laughs> what is it the wake and bake or someone show uh saw blazing saddles had a wake and bake uh scene apparently what's the what's the status of legal advice given under the influence <laughs> i i'm not prepared to answer that <laughs> <laughs> no comment oh dear yeah, um yeah it's it's so i think th thc i think like, but look, whether it's or CBD, it has, certainly has a therapeutic place. Yeah. Where we probably see it and our partners probably see it at the moment is more along the lines of patients with severe breakthrough pain, where CBD does have some, some pain relief um, aspects to it. Adding THC may just be able to give it that added boost that they need for the more sure. severe patient symptoms. So um, that patient is probably more concerned about their pain management than they are about the need to drive. They'll give up the need to drive to manage their pain effectively. Yeah, and I can imagine down the down the line there might be hybrid CBD, CBN vapes, CBG. Who knows? There could be. Yeah, and again, as I think what you mentioned earlier, Mitch, was that um, you know there's a lot of there's a lot more research and, and certain, um, I suppose, certainty around. CBD and THC specifically. Yeah, um, as a result of that, it's much more cost effective for anyone sure. to do the research and start at that point. Yep, absolutely. Um, I'm just, that, I think where it's going to stay for a little while until you know. For sure, for without a doubt. I, I'm just thinking, you know, fast 
forward in five years and maybe where are we and what's what, what's kind of exciting on the on the horizon of cannabis as well but absolutely i can't see that happening think, for, for some years so that's where you'll see big pharma advancing the cannabis cause because they're the guys who can come in on those those uh, lesser cannabinoids and they have the money and they have the resources to look into it yeah. far more than most of the um, cannabis players sure. do um I love tying in the whole chat right at the end with all the pieces we've been talking about. Perfect. You can see why you're the CEO. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you, Matthew. Do you, any any last questions, Andrew? You, you're all... I'm all good, good, but I feel like there will be a part two and maybe a part yeah. three. Well, it was so much more to, um, to unpack here, but yeah, echo exactly what Mitch said. It's been a pleasure chatting with you, Matt. We really appreciate you um, giving us some of your time. No, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Good to speak to you guys again. And um, yeah, look forward to chatting with you in the future. Yeah, I'm sure. Lots of topics and lots of change in the industry that are going to happen. Absolutely. I can I can see uh, quite a few big things happening at LiveSpot over the next few years, and I'm sure we'll, we'll have you on again. So yeah, until then, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. All right. Great speaking to you guys. Have a great night. Thanks, you man. You too. Cheers. Thanks, man. All right.